you don't read the newspaper, you're uninformed. If you do read it, you're misinformed. What is the long-term effect of too much information? Information, information. I just need some information. I've been dying, I've been dying. Is it lack of education? I've been reading, I've been reading without any transformation. I'm addicted, I'm addicted. Is it overstimulation? Hey. Welcome to the success report. The success report. Hear ye, hear ye, come one, come all. You're listening to The Sixth Sense Report with Joel Nikoloff and Darnell Samuels. Yeah, we're, we're blessed again to, to have a guest in the house, Pastor Paul Carter. Oh, welcome, Pastor Paul. <laughs> Good to be here. <laughs> so for those, uh, for our audience who, who doesn't know you, not familiar with you, can you give them a, a brief background of who you are and where you come from? Yeah, sure. My name is Paul Carter. I'm I'm married. My wife's name is Shauna Lee. We've got uh, five kids. I'm the pastor of Cornerstone Baptist Church in Aurelia, and uh, I'm on the executive council for TGC Canada and do a little bit of writing for them. And then I uh, have a Bible reading devotional commentary called Into the Word, uh, where we work our way through whole books of the Bible, chapter by chapter and verse by verse. Okay, nice, nice. And you also know Joel. How do you know Joel? He married one of my students. Yeah, he married Jenna Bolt. Oh, well, lucky maybe guy. Maybe I shouldn't say the name on, on the <laughs> yeah, show. Yeah, I don't no, know. No. She's been on. Gonna... She's actually, we had her on for one episode. Oh, okay. All right. So people know her. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's good. That's good. Okay. So what you, and I think you were her youth pastor? Yeah, back in the day. Oh, wow. Yeah. And, and Jenna and I uh, frequent Paul's church whenever it uh, makes sense for us because it's a bit of a mission. They're frequent visitors and we, we, we like visitors. Okay. Okay. D- d- wait, did I, were you, were you at the wedding? No. Oh, you weren't invited. Uh, yeah, that's awkward. <laughs> you yeah. Still a bit of a sore point. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, so, we, well we did yeah. have we actually had edit, you said this was multi-track, right? <laughs> yes. Good. Okay. All right. Good. We we had we had representation from his church. Yeah. Matt and Jill were there. Matt Matt actually was the guy who who prayed uh, for dinner. Um, Darnell referred to him as a pastor, which was kind of funny because Darnell Perfect. was the MC at my wedding. So, um, yes. Yeah, so. There's, there's okay. still connections. Yeah, yeah. No, that's good. That's good. Okay. Uh, so now your your church denomination, Pastor Paul, um, has been in the news. Uh, can you give our audience why your denomination has been in the news and the controversies associated with it? Uh, oh, I assume you're referring to the, the issue at Lorne Park? Is that... Uh, in, in regards to the the pastor that came out um, as uh, transgender. Yeah, so... I. I wasn't sure whether you're referring to our recent assembly, which may or may not have been. Yeah, no, 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 no. We'll we'll get to the assembly as well. Sure. Yeah. So I think it was back in the summer. It was during COVID. Certainly it was during the lockdown. Um, There was a a pastor of one of our, one of the churches in our denomination who, um, who came out as transgender in a, in a sermon. Uh, The, the church was uh, quite divided over it. I, I think they, they eventually voted, uh, to oust the pastor by a, a very slim margin, uh, maybe 51 to 49 or something of that nature. And uh, it was quite disruptive. And it, it, you know, lots of denominations are facing this issue, which is to say that if you don't have boundaries, if, if you don't have a, an agreed upon doctrine of scripture, you are opening yourself up to all manner of incidents like this. And uh, this issue, the ripples of of this issue are are ongoing in the church uh, and in the in the denomination as a whole. It's a it's a canary in the coal mine, as as they say. 
Canarian. Well, yeah. Well, like, maybe they don't say that anymore. Maybe my grandmother said that, and nobody else knows what she was talking about. Yeah, no, because um, because it, it was it was a hot topic. Yeah. Uh, in secular news, it was popping up everywhere where right, um, yeah. non Christians were kind of asking, and it started to raise the question about it, the church not being up accepting of right. um, not just uh, LGBTQ, but also uh, LGBTQ in the context of leadership. Uh, have you had to answer any questions in regards to that? Uh, me personally, no, uh, no, and not in the sense that. Uh, I'm sure that the people there at that church have been wrestling with that, uh, mm-hmm. with that particular issue. Um, I'm, I'm not sure that too many people in our community would be aware that there's a, a formal relationship between our churches. So, no, but but conceptually, you know, because I've written on the topic and, and because I've um, spoken on the topic, it certainly does come up as a theoretical conversation. And, and the conversation revolves around um, how does God relate to sinners and and we all know that that God accepts people. We all know that God is gracious, but what does that mean in terms of of our behaviors? So we you know we use phrases like God accepts us just as we are, and and there's a sense in which that is true. But then as as soon as we sort of come walk through the gates of the kingdom, as it were, as soon as we assume our identity as the children of God through faith in Christ, then there's a okay. Now you need to become what you are. You need to behave like. The, according to the family standard, as it were. And so God accepts us as we are, but then he, he immediately begins to change us and reform our character by one degree of glory to the next. So that is a fairly nuanced reality. Most people don't want to sit around for that paragraph. They just want the soundbite. Are you pro or con LGBTQ? And and the Christian answer is more complicated than that. I mean, we're we're pro all people. Like, we we love all. And yet... If we're going to love people like God loves people, then then we have to say, well, I'm for you, but I'm against your sin, and that's that's the part that gets lost in in translation. So it it is a conversation. I think it's a fairly useful conversation. It's an opportunity for the church to clarify what we believe. But for churches who obscure that through you know oddities of polity or practice, then yeah, it complicates the conversation in the public square. Hmm. Because like. Yeah, because you're talking about denominations, and I've noticed that churches have been going away from that. From from uh, from, from like the remember like 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 the denominational titles, because before it would be like oh, uh, First Baptist Church, right? Uh, Jarvis Street Baptist Church, so and so Pentecost. Paul's former name. Yeah, well, Sorry? yeah, our church was known as First Baptist Church. We didn't. Interestingly, people always assume that we are uh, not people in this community, but people out there in the blogosphere or whatever, the wider Christian world assumed that we changed our name to Cornerstone because we were distancing ourselves from the denomination. But uh, we still have the word Baptist in our church name. In, in reality, <laughs> the the name first lost all meaning in this, in this community, as I think it has in most communities. It used to mean that we were the original Baptist church and that we planted all the other Baptist church churches. But now to most people in the community who hear that, they think we're saying we're the best Baptist church. And so we just realized we'd, we'd prefer to say less about ourselves as a church and more about Jesus um, as we introduce ourselves to, to newcomers. So that's that's why we made the change. Oh, okay, okay. Because, um, yeah, cause I, I've just noticed that um, in general, because I'm really into yep. ecclesiology and church planting. Right and so, um, because it, it's, 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 it's friendlier, it's easier to market a church called uh, Crossway, The Way, sure. uh, The Path, 
Jesus house, <laughs> that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, but the question I'm asking is why are denominations important? Cause most of the arguments I get into with Christians is like, Oh, well I go to a non-denominational church, but I always say, well, a non-denominational church is a denominational church. Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, I'm I'm actually toying with writing a blog called "If I Were Starting a Denomination from Scratch." Mm-hmm. Um, now I'm I'm not uh, planning on doing that right now, but it is it's a it's a worthwhile conversation, and it's it's probably an important conversation to have even if you're in a denomination and have no plans of going anywhere because there's a lot of mission creep in a lot of denominations, and denominations usually sorry, start. Sorry, out, what, what's a mission creep? Mission creep, uh, meaning you start off with a very narrow mandate, you know, do a, B, and C. But then because organizations are organizations, they're like organisms. They they have a will to survive. They have a will to protect and they have a will to grow. Mm-hmm. Inevitably, organizations that start off to do A, B, and C end up doing A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, K I mean, and ad nauseum. And that's mission creep when you all of a sudden are doing a whole bunch of things nobody asked you to do. And and I would say that's that's what happens to a lot of a lot of denominations, but you need to think about what, what should a denomination do? Why at the end of the day, why, why are there denominations? And I think the simple answer is because there are some things that are easier to do in team. You think of lifting a table, a, a long, heavy dining room table. Well, I, I would really struggle to lift that on my own. It's just too long and too big, but you know, Joel and I together could, could very easily lift that him at one end and, and me at the other. And it's not a question of, you know, well, maybe you should just do more sit-ups and push-ups. No, it's the task itself requires partnership. And, and I would say there are certain things in in church that require partnership. So churches get together. But then if you're not clear about what you're doing and, and what you're not doing, and if you're not clear about why you're doing it, it gets messy quick. Yeah, that's a, you know, it's an interesting point. I mean, essentially you're saying the the denomination serves as a means of proxy that you're aligned or there's some unity um, with your purposes. Well, there has to be. So, meaning, I think what you've said yes. is, is not necessarily true. It's just aspirationally true. Uh, it ought to be true. It just isn't always um, so sometimes denominations get together just by accident. Uh, they they share a brand name or they share a bit of history or they share an accident of practice. Like, to be honest with you, some Baptists associate just because they they baptize by immersion. They do, you know, uh, adult baptism by immersion. And, and, and they say, well, then, since you also do that, we should partner. Uh, that's not enough. Uh, and that, and so there isn't the agreement that actually can facilitate a long-time partnership. So it should be true, but it isn't always so the what what's the problem with CBOQ? Um, your 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 present denomination. <laughs> well, I mean that's a big question, and 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 you'd get different answers depending on who you asked. Uh, from my perspective, I would say that there is a tension in the CBOQ between values that has never never been resolved and and never really clarified to everyone's satisfaction, and the tension is between local church autonomy and and the authority of scripture. So, you know, Baptists have a, a value that makes them distinct from Presbyterians, Anglicans, or Lutherans, which is to say we, we place a higher value on the local church. Like, so when you listen to Anglicans talk about the church, you have to listen very carefully to determine whether they're talking about a local parish or whether they're talking about the Anglican church, because they use the word interchangeably. So mm-hmm. sometimes they're talking about what we would call the denomination, and sometimes they're talking about the local parish. Anglican ecclesiology 
assumes a, a balance between the, the wider association and the local parish. That slider is further towards autonomy uh, in, in the Presbyterian model, which is kind of a, an in-betweener. They, they're in, baked into their cake is the, is the understanding that there is a certain amount of autonomy to the local congregation, but then there is a session. Uh, there, there is baked into the cake this concept of plurality, that churches are going to get together at the town level, at the region level, and, and decide certain issues. Okay, well, then at the far end of the spectrum are Baptists, where, where Baptists basically all of their ecclesiology fits into the local church box. Like, all Christians understand that there is some kind of universal church, but, but then um, Baptists locate most of their practical ecclesiology in the, in the box called local church. And, and so they, they have a concept or they have a notion of association, but it is by far the, the weakest notion or the weakest impulse when, when compared to, you know, Presbyterians or Anglicans. So Baptists actually refer to what's called free will association, and mm-hmm. meaning my church can choose to associate with your church, but I don't have to. And, and even that term, free will association, I mean, that tells you the hesitance and the ambiguity in our polity. We've We've got the back door worked into the front door, right? Free will association. I've already told you I can leave at any time. That's a weird way to begin a relationship. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, that's a little bit like calling it an open marriage. That's right. not really a marriage. Um, and so I would just say we we are not sure about all of this stuff. And so Baptists, uh, they associate, but they really still value their autonomy, the autonomy of the local church. So you can't tell me what to do. You, the head office doesn't own my uh, building the head office doesn't hire the pastor. The head office doesn't tell us what mission projects we have to contribute to. So that's that's local church autonomy. But but then there are things that that we want to do together. So there's this impulse towards association, and and then also the the other competing Baptist value in this mix is is the autonomy or the authority of the scriptures. But so here's the rub: What if you're in? some kind of association with a bunch of other Baptist churches and they're not submitting to the authority of scripture. Is there any mechanism for imposing a standard on them? Mm -hmm. That is like a conversation that's never been successfully concluded in, in our little group. Um, There are people who use the autonomy of the local church as a defeater value, as a way of saying, no, I won't tolerate any conversation about what I should be believing about this, 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 or this, even if you've got a great verse for that, because I'm an autonomous local church. What what we were saying in this conversation, our argument in this conversation Sorry, was- our, your church? Yeah. So no, I'm I'm now, the our I'm referring to is, there's a renewal association that, that our church has been involved with uh, called CLARA, Covenant Life Renewal Association. And we've we've been arguing that churches are autonomous. They're free to wrestle with the scriptures and land however they like. But if they land there, then they can no longer associate with us. That that in essence, we would we would like the group as a whole, the association as a whole, to say, you're free to wrestle. You're free to wrestle with the scriptures and say, I think the Bible um, affirms. LGBTQ in in the sense of saying to a, a converted LGBTQ person, you don't need to stop practicing your homosexuality. You're free to land there. But if you land there, you can no longer associate with us. You've, you've landed outside the boundaries of our free will association. We thought that was a reasonable way of balancing this tension. Um, but the group as a whole didn't like that approach. 
Yeah, it's, it. I was. I read your article on it. It's pre- pretty good. I mean, you've you've written a number of articles through. Uh, is it Afontis? Is that? Yeah, that's a confusing <laughs> little website. In, in essence, it it it's a website that lies dormant until Clara has something to say. Um, I do most of my writing now through TGC Canada. Originally, uh, that little Afontis website was like Paul Carter's personal blog, and then when Paul started writing for TGC Canada, it it. The only thing that went up there still was um, stuff that came out of the Clara website. So, oh, okay. yeah, a little confusing. Yeah, no, I was, but but the article you know you wrote sort of summarizes almost. I don't want to say perfectly summarizes, but you've written a lot on this issue through that website. Um, yeah. uh, you know, over the, since 2017, give or take, I think is about right. And and I mean, this article we'll definitely put in the show notes page does do a really good summary. I think of of all that's gone on there. And and if I you know uh, was to summarize it, really, what you did in the the you know the 2017 AGM or whatever the proper terminology for it is, um, was sort of try to get the association to say, okay, let's set some sort of denominational guidance that everybody's going to yep. adhere to. And and your point is that yeah, exactly it right. Didn't, didn't, uh, well, I, th- I think we had an aspirational pol- polity, to be perfectly honest with you. Like, I think meaning, I think we had this vision that if we just loved each other enough and read our Bibles enough, we'd be able to stick together without any kind of policing mechanism. Wow, an, an aspiration pol, an aspirational polity, an aspirational polity, meaning this sort of pie in the sky, a little bit op- overly optimistic, but but kind of sweet. We we sort of thought like if we all love Jesus mm-hmm. and if we're all reading our Bibles and if we all appreciate this fellowship. We ought to be able to stick together without any any kind of external mechanism holding us together. So think of it this way. Here's here's a, a picture. If the words are confusing, I, w- I would say this. You know, imagine a bunch of ships at sea on a calm day. They might say, "Well, should we chain ourselves to each other? No, we don't need to do that. Let's just all agree to send warm thoughts across the bow <laughs> to keep to keep each other in in view, and we'll be able to travel as a giant armada all on our own." That's, that is great. And that actually works on a sunny day, but it's not a sunny day anymore in evangelicalism. Like we're in a full, you know, category five storm here and warm thoughts across the bow are (laughs) are no longer adequate. Like there needs to be some kind of sea chain uh, if we're going to keep, keep this thing together. Otherwise we're going to be scattered to all four corners of of, of the ocean. And that's what's happened in the CBOQ. We've got people all over the map uh, on, on the issue of how to reach out to LGBTQ people in gospel love and concern Mm -hmm. without denying the authority of Holy scripture and without eviscerating the the power and the the essence of the gospel. We've got churches all over the map. What, what I find like, so my sort of, simplistic view of denominations is there's a you know one of the roles obviously you sort of laid out with regards to association of churches but the other side is especially for in canada with you know the legacy to some extent of our denominations of, of credentialing pastors and ordaining pastors and yeah, and that's an administrative function and, and, it, and it matters and and this is where like i find you know my my thought is like so don't wouldn't you want to be part of an association that sort of has a standard for who is ordained and who isn't? And, and, Oh, you absolutely would. (laughs) And, and so, um, can you speak to maybe, I guess, what, what level that does exist and, and maybe, uh, the aspirational level that it should exist? Yeah. So I would say that's one of the reasons for a denomination. Like, again, I mean, the reason denominations exist is because there are good reasons for them, right? I, I know, among young people, and I don't want to 
stereotype you guys as young people, but um, uh, among young people, there's sort of a default reaction to sort of say, well, denominations are stupid. And Mm -hmm. I would say, okay, you go plant a church Mm -hmm. and I bet you within six months, you'll be calling me saying, "Uh, what would it look like for me to start a denomination? (laughs) Yep. Because you're going to figure out that you need something, right? Like you need a way to get a license so that you can marry people Mm because you got young people in your church and they're going to get married. And and then you want to do some missions, but you don't want to fund an entire $400,000 project. Could we get 10 churches together to fund this? Yep. Now you got yourself a denomination. Right. Uh, and plus, I bet you want a pension, right? And health benefits? Good. Do you want to do that as a single payer through an insurance company? Or do you want to get 10 churches together, right? So you're going to have a denomination within six months. Um, the, so the, the only question is, is it going to be a good one or a bad one? But so going back to the issue of ordination, in the CBOQ, that's always been a bit of a compromise. So the, within the CBOQ, there are, there are three fairly distinct groups. There's a very progressive wing um, and that represents maybe 30% of the churches. Uh, then there's um, a, a reformed base, like the Canadian Baptists actually historically were um, either regular Baptists who came up from the States, so that's a, a type of reformed Baptist that came up out of the States, or they were particular Baptists that came from England. Okay, sorry, what's a particular Baptist? It's just another name for reformed Baptist. It's, it's the okay. English way of saying reformed. Like, so our okay. church, First Baptist Church is a classic example. Our original name was a really irregular Baptist church. So that's the American name for a Reformed Baptist church. Okay. But our first pa- pastor was a particular Baptist church from a particular Baptist from England. Okay. So it, it doesn't matter. All, okay. all you need to know is th- th- our original DNA was Reformed Baptist. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's been, you know, loads of drift and change. So long story short, we've got this 30% now progressive wing. We've got a 30% Reformed tail. And then in between, you know, we've got this 40%, you know, I use the phrase muddy middle, (laughs) that makes everybody angry. But uh, this middle group of just super sweet people who by and large haven't really landed on any of these issues and would just like us all to get along. Um, And and so there was uh, an awkward compromise for the I've been in the CBOQ for 21 years. For the 21 years I've been in the CBOQ, there's this awkward, awkward compromise where we'll agree to ordain egalitarians egalitarians will agree to ordain complementarians and we won't we won't make it an issue okay wait sorry one second quickly just for the for our listeners just want to be clear uh what does cboq stand for canadian baptist of ontario and quebec okay and then you just mentioned egalitarian and complementarian yeah 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 so egalitarian uh, these are two different views on gender so egalitarians would say that men and women are exactly the same in all respects and and they may not say it that way but and i don't want to caricaturize but they they would basically say men and women are are exactly the same and uh with with obvious biological differences etc but and and that women can be pastors and women can be elders there's there's no distinction there in terms of our role and function Complementarians uh, typically would say um, men and women are equal with respect to their dignity and and their worth before God, and they're and they're of course equal uh, inheritors of the riches of God in Christ. Nevertheless, uh, there are there continue to be role distinctions within the home and in the church. So they would they would say that it, uh, you know the husband uh, in the home should be providing spiritual nurture to the children, either directly or at least in, a, in an oversight capacity. And that similarly in the church, um, the authoritative teaching office should, should be held by a, a father in the church, a man. And there should be another group of men 
who exercise discernment over that office, who hold the pastor accountable. So in complementarian churches, the pastors and the, and the overseeing elders are men. Whereas in egalitarian churches, those would be men and women. That's that's a difference in terms of how we understand uh, gender. And you know, when when you're talking LGBTQ, you're you're re- recognizing that it's on issues of sexuality and gender where our reading of the Bible is is put under pressure. There are passages in the Bible, you know, First Timothy two nine to fifteen. Where the Apostle Paul says, I, I do not permit women to, to teach and exercise authority in the churches. Well, mm-hmm. what does that mean? Mm-hmm. Does it mean that he does not permit women to teach and exercise authority in the churches, or does it not? Some say, yes, that's what it means. Others say, no, it doesn't mean that. And so, this isn't the most important issue in the world, but it does, it does reveal how you're reading the Scriptures. Um, and so there's a connection there between this fruit and the underlying root, which is hermeneutics, another big word, which just means how you're reading the Bible. But anyway, to get back to your question about ordination. So there was this sort of uneasy truce for 21 years where I've been here, where we'd ordain their, their candidates, they'd ordain ours. That, that truce sort of eroded about five years ago. And now it, it's touch and go for everybody to get ordained right now because um, the complementarian candidates are are not getting through or, or they're being resisted and pushed back upon. And so there's a sense in which we've run out of agreement. We no longer have the necessary agreement to fulfill our, even our administrative functions. So I guess, you know, t- for me, that that sort of says, um, as, as the 2020, you know, uh, me- meeting didn't produce, let's say, a clear forward direction, um, where do you as a church and, and, you know, you as a pastor now stand with this denomination? Yeah. Uh, so great question. You know, f- I, let me put it this way. And, I, and I'm, I'm, all, I'm trying to be careful here because to a certain extent, this is, there's like insider family conversation. You want to be careful about airing your, your family business before the neighbors. But, but in essence, I would just say it's, it's a parable of the times. Like I've often thought that the Canadian Baptist denomination is Canadian evangelicalism, mm-hmm. In, in miniature, um, the the all the struggles that we're going through are the same struggles you could point to in the evangelical church in Canada as a whole. So it there, there's a sense in which it's useful to talk about these things just for the benefit of of those watching on, but with some sensitivity and and some care on the details. But I would say you know our church was in an interesting situation. We're up in Aurelia, so it's an hour north of Toronto, and. The, the first great crisis in the Canadian Baptist denomination was back in the 1920s. And by and large, it was over the issue of inerrancy. It was over the doctrine of scripture. And by and large, it didn't affect our, our church. Um, there was a group that went out from our church uh, over the issue, but it, it, it wasn't... In fact, our church adopted the new word. The new word being proposed was inerrancy. We, we put it into our statement. It's been in our statement for you know 100 years now. Uh, so we went along with the new word, but we didn't actually leave the denomination which resisted the new word because we saw it as, I think historically, we saw it as this is a tempest in a teapot and the teapot is Toronto and Hamilton. Um, the people down in Toronto and Hamilton are having a, you know, a, a great row over this. We'll just put the word in our statement of faith and move on. So we we kind of missed the whole big controversy that produced the Fellowship Baptists. The Fellowship Baptists are a group that left the Canadian Baptists in the 1920s 
uh, over the word inerrancy. The Fellowship Baptist wanted the word added to, to sort of buttress or shore up our doctrine of scripture. Um, the Canadian Baptist group as a whole said, no, we don't, we don't want to impose that understanding of scripture on all of our churches. We took the, the middle position. We're like, well, we'll, <laughs> we'll use the word. It sounds great. Um, but we didn't leave. Um, so anyway, so that, that's, that's kind of what happened. And then our church basically in the sixties tried to run a little bit of renewal, uh, or initiate a bit of renewal and were rebuffed. We were told, you know, hey, we're not interested. And so, the, you know, the pastor there recommended to our church that we just basically function as an independent Baptist church, which which we did. We had very little to do with the denomination for decades. Then when we heard in 2010 what was going on in some of our sister churches with respect to this LGBTQ issue, we we felt like we either needed to leave or make another effort at renewal. And so, you know, we got together with other Reformed churches in the denomination and said, well, let's, rather than all just leave, why, why don't we try and see how much appetite there is for renewal? So we made a 10-year effort, which and I came— And that's commendable. Well, thanks. But whether it was commendable or not, I don't know. Uh, uh, but it came to an end uh, this past Thursday, and now— Many, I, I don't know, many slash most of those churches will, will shortly be on their way out. Would uh, the other Baptist, and I'm, uh, I can't remember what you said the name was, um, Renewal, the Fellowship Baptist, would that the be Fellowship sort Baptist? of the natural likelihood? I think it probably will for many. Um, I, I know that also some have already left and joined the Baptist General Conference. So, because not all the churches had the appetite to stick it out for the whole decade, churches have dropped off along the way. There have been several disappointing twists and turns in the process, and so uh, numerous churches have already dropped out, and, and they've they've gone. And I wouldn't be surprised if two thirds of them ended up in the fellowship, and then one third ended up elsewhere. Mm-hmm. You, you you mentioned uh, the, the statement that came out like last Thursday, um, the final decision. What was that about? Well, so there was, uh, we had our assembly on Thursday and basically, uh, you know, rightly or wrongly. And again, I suppose if you ask somebody on the other side of this issue, they, they would summarize events differently. So I'm sensitive to that. But from our perspective, we would say we, we worked pretty hard over the last 10 years to, to try and get this conversation out of the shadows. We felt like there was stuff going on in the shadows that the vast majority of our churches were unaware of. And there didn't seem to be a lot of appetite from the leadership to shine a light on that and have a conversation. It was, you know, shh, mind your own business, go back to your churches, we're autonomous, you can't tell other churches what to do. We're like, well, I'm not sure that's true, actually. Uh, we, we can't tell them what to do, but we can say, if you're doing that, you can't be here. And, and it felt like there was a lot of effort to suppress the conversation. So we worked very hard to bring the conversation into the light. And then our goal, the end goal for us was always to get to a decision, to put before assembly, to say, okay, you've heard the story, you know what's going on, how do you feel about it? And for us, we wanted just to get them to the place where they'd be willing to decide, are we willing to limit our commitment to local autonomy in order to establish an outer boundary for our association, yes or no? And, and so there were a couple of different motions that all tried to get at that and they all failed to pass. Now they were, they all, you know, were, they all failed to pass by narrow margins, like 55 to 45. So there's considerable division over this issue, but at the end the, you know, they decided, no, we are not willing to budge on autonomy in order to establish a boundary for fellowship. And so for most of us, that's, that's it. That's the ball game. Wow. And I guess that's, that's, um, is that, 
is that a primary issue would you say um the lgbtq thing H- how would you explain that as a primary issue and grounds for um, breaking up yeah no well, that's interesting i i wouldn't so i get asked this all the time you know oh why do you guys want to talk about sex all the time and i feel like saying nobody wants to talk about sex all the time uh that's that's not the issue it's not that's not a, a prime issue what it is is it's a fruit that indicates a root if if you so here's the issue. Uh, we we wanted to establish a limit, and, and it's, there's a there's a range of of opinions as to how to reach out to LGBTQ people. So let's let's not exaggerate. It's not a a situation where on the left you've got people who want to be mean and unkind to LGBTQ people, and then on the right you've got people who want to be loving and and reach out in gospel concern. No, that's not it at all. The the differences are more nuanced. Uh, I would say you've got a group that would like to be welcoming but not affirming. So they would like to say, let's reach out in love and gospel concern to LGBTQ people. Let's let's hope that dozens and dozens and hundreds of them show up for our Sunday service. And let's hope that they feel safe. And let's hope that they feel loved. And, and let's hope that they get invited over to people's houses for lunch. Mm-hmm. But let's hope that they hear that should they come to Christ, they'll be expected to agree with God on everything, including those matters related to sexuality and gender, and that they'll be given grace by the Holy Spirit to slowly but surely make changes. That we all, I mean, the Apostle Paul says, we all, meaning all saved people, we all, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord as though in a mirror, are being transformed by one degree of glory to the next into the same image. And this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So the Apostle Paul's gospel assumes that when people come to Christ and are filled with the Holy Spirit, they are given power, grace, ability to slowly but surely change in the direction of Jesus Christ. And you say, well, what is, what is the direction of Jesus Christ with respect to sexuality? It, it, would, it would be chastity for those who would identify as homosexual, um, but it would also be an affirmation of traditional marriage uh, which is between one man and, and one woman. And so they would either be given grace to live uh, chaste, or they would be given grace to engage with biblical marriage by one degree of glory to the next. That would come from the Spirit. That's that's the other option. And in my mind, those are not the same. Like In essence, if you have a different approach on that, if you're going to say to somebody, hey, you can come to Christ, be a Christian, and carry on living a version of sexuality that is opposed to what the scriptures say is God's design, that's, in my mind, that's, that's not the gospel. So it's not that sexuality is a prime issue. It's, it's that it, that approach reveals a deficient gospel. Uh, I believe in a gospel that changes people. I believe in a gospel, I believe in a, in, in, in a God who loves us and hates our sin. And who says, I, I welcome you, but understand mm-hmm. this, I welcome you and I'm going to change you. Mm-hmm. But if, if, if your gospel is God welcomes me and, and embraces me and sends, sends me out as I am, that there's no change, that there's no power to change, that, that's not the gospel. Yeah, no, uh, a couple episodes ago, we did an episode on gay girl, good God by Jackie Hill Perry. Right, yeah, great. And book. yeah, yeah, and... um. 
yeah, I was blown away well, by how, well, we both were blown away by how great the book was. And and she was talking about um, the nuances of, of course, reaching out to Christians who who struggle with same-sex attraction. And she was nuancing that and not, and that the bottom line she was, the argument she was making was that um, you are defined by your identity in Christ, period. Yeah. And you don't, you, you don't, you don't champion uh, your gender, your race, or anything else, but that you champion who Christ is. Yeah, and 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 that you are turning away from um, your sexual desires unless you're married. Yeah. Well, one of the key words, uh, one of the key phrases in 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 our Christian conversation about the gospel had better be such were some of you. Yes. Right? Yes. That's the that's what I was thinking of. Yes. Yeah. First Corinthians six eleven. Such yes. were some of you. You know, you, but but then he goes, but you were washed, you were sanctified, yeah. you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That's the biblical gospel. Yes, that you you do come, however you are, absolutely. But such were some of you, meaning that's the past. That's not who you are now. Yes, and also um, in the such were some of you, um, he he did mention um, homosexuality. Oh, absolutely. He mentioned that. He so he he said like that's what you once were. Absolutely. And such were some of you. So that just shows that you know that there, there you can you can um, come out of that. But again, I think it's and also, he begins the passage by saying, "Do not be deceived." Do not, which, oh, which means yes. there will the yes. devil will constantly be working this part of the gospel. Mm-hmm. He will constantly be trying to tell us that no, 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 no. To love people is to, is to uh, affirm their sin. No, mm-hmm. no, no, no. Come on, like in the very first um, love your neighbor passage in Leviticus nineteen, it literally says. Do not hate your neighbor in your heart. Do not fail to rebuke your neighbor or to reason frankly with your neighbor. Love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord your God. Meaning he's saying, you got to love people like I love people. And, and, the Israelites knew very well, yeah, God loves us, but every once in a while he, he tells us the truth and, and wow, he rebukes us. And yeah. So if you want to love people like God loves, that means telling the truth, reasoning frankly, um, and but the devil's always going to be working that he's always going to be putting pressure on that. Mm-hmm. So then, like, um, so as a church, when do you decide, um, or not even just church, but as a person, like the individual, how do you know <laughs> um, uh, the church you're about to attend to, or the church you are attending uh, <laughs> has a, a faulty foundation or a weak foundation, or that they're about to compromise because. Um, I get into this conversation a lot, and a lot of times people attend church because that's where their auntie goes, or yeah, sure. or you know, or whatever the case may be. So, what what would you suggest would be uh, a good way to know you're in a healthy church without getting nine marksy? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, there are nine marks of a healthy church. Let's go through them. Uh, no, I would say this. Um, uh, I would say there should be clarity. I'm I'm nervous about churches that are um, intentionally ambiguous on on this stuff. I think th- I think there is a notion that some people have that maybe if we just don't talk about this, um, w- we'll somehow offend the fewest people. I think we're way past that. Uh, I think people now know this is a. You know, I don't want to use the word litmus test, but. It, a litmus test reveals something else, right? Um, and and I would say this this issue does kind of function to reveal your underlying commitments. And so 
I think being clear on this kind of stuff is important. I know when we redid our statement of faith in 2013 here, uh, because we were going like every other charity, we were we had to resubmit our bylaws. We made the decision actually to beef up, to add word count to our paragraph on uh, Christian marriage and human sexuality. Because the reality is, I mean, a paragraph that was written in 1962 probably didn't didn't even imagine that this conversation would be happening. So we it, it had said that, you know, marriage is between one man and one woman to the exclusion of all others, et cetera. But we, you know, we felt the need to add a sentence there um, and not between a man and a man and not between a woman and a woman. And like, we felt the need to be quite clear there. And, and so I would say churches ought to be clear. Congregants ought to demand clarity. Um, one of the one of the most overlooked aspects of ecclesiology is is the fact that the Bible is very clear that ultimately the church leadership is accountable to the congregation. I, I ha, I'm leading a small group right now called Church 2.0, thinking about ecclesiology in and after this pandemic. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the questions I asked is, who's responsible for disciplining the pastor? Mm. And there was lots of, mm. and then we read a couple of of passages, one from Second John. And, uh, and then one from uh, 1 Timothy 5, where it's pretty clear the congregation is. Um, and, and most congregations are unaware of that. Like, mm-hmm. oh, like we're going to be held accountable for God for what kind of preacher we pay for. Mm-hmm. Yes. And, and we're responsible f- if the pastor veers into error and, and won't repent of that or return from that. We're responsible for rebuking him in the presence of all that the others might fear. Yes. 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 You are. Amen. So congregations should demand clarity on these issues. Uh, and I would say if you're going to a, a congregation that delights in ambiguity, you're going to the wrong church. Um, but then as as for a church in an association, I, I would say the same. We, that's what we've been demanding. We've been demanding clarity. We finally got it on Thursday. It wasn't the clear answer we were looking for, but it was clear. Um, and and now we have to respond appropriately with uh, with what you were saying about you know the congregation holding the pastor accountable. Would you would you say that sort of ties into the idea of membership um, and and oh totally <laughs> the necessity yeah, of it? I have a good friend who is a he's a mentor. He does basically contract HR work. He's he's kind of a semi retired pastor, and now he does contract HR work for for churches and denominations. And he said to me that this, one of the things that this pandemic has revealed is that mm. the great evangelical weakness is ecclesiology. Mm. We, we're so individualistic. You know, we, we do a good job of understanding Jesus and, and, you know, the young restless reform guys, you know, have everything boiled down to a, you know, an equation and a, and a three letter acronym. And so that's, that's, you know, that's great. Um, but none of us have, or not none of us, but very few of us have thought through ecclesiology like what what about the us part what about all those one another's how does that work out and and there's a real weakness there um that that needs to be addressed and and actually my church 2.0 small group was was kind of a response to that just going yeah our ecclesiology is pretty weak too but in our last session we literally just went through the issue of membership why does it matter and you need to be invested you need to be a stakeholder you need to be a voter in a church um Partly because you've got responsibilities as an individual, but then partly because you have vulnerabilities and, and weaknesses as an individual. Um, church membership is good for you. It's good for the church, and it's good for you. Yeah. Uh, it's funny because um, I kind of, well, okay, so Joel and I, uh, we met through a, a Bible study group slash backslash gang. <laughs> 
um, that oh, wow. right yeah uh, <laughs> like is this the militant wing of the salvation army uh, no 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 this is more like a blood crypt type thing i see yeah yeah blood of jesus type thing gotcha. so so it, and so it, it's basically made up of guys from different you know churches and we used to meet at 11 30 at night at denny's and do bible study to 2 30 a.m every friday oh cool um this, this was before the wife and the kids and <laughs> yeah we guess so. yeah yeah this was just like yeah no responsibilities and like you know that we'd be staying outside for an hour to pray and all this so all of us literally like just grew up together mm-hmm. and you know go to each other's weddings and so forth so now um we've transitioned into adulthood in christ and so the big thing is are you attending somewhere are you a member somewhere so that's a point of contention with all of us where somebody's like okay well where are you attending are you serving are you committed to loving the people where you're at or are you still acting like you're 20 years old and only just pitching doctrine but you're not committed to serving anywhere and so that's a point especially for me that's that's a point that really bakes my biscuits yeah, well, too many Christians are loving everyone in general and no one in particular, right? And, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. that's part of what membership is intended to do. It's intended to nail you down somewhere, and it's, <laughs> and, and it's necessary, particularly for young men. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, that's true. So, in regards to like we we were talking about like uh, the whole LGBTQ aspect, mm-hmm. but then the other side of the social justice coin is like critical race theory do you think that also that variable can also i don't want to say erode a found um a church's foundation kind of like the lgbtq thing did but do you think critical race theory kind of does the same thing in a sense well it's an interesting question certainly a timely question i would say i i don't think that critical race theory is on the same level as for example, the challenge raised by LGBTQ issues in the church. Uh, I think a lot of the noise and conflict around critical race theory, in my opinion, comes down to what people mean by that and, and how they're using those terms. So, for example, I, th- I think the vast majority of Bible reading Christians would agree that we ought to pursue change primarily by seeking the conversion of individual people. The New Testament does never tell slaves to rise up in bloody revolt against their masters. It tells them to try and win their masters, actually, by being the best slaves on the estate and and by letting the light of Christ shine through their lives. Now, the New Testament also undermines the institution of slavery in several very important ways, but any Bible-reading Christian will have to be impressed by the long-term perspective and by the individual approach that is modeled in the text. Now, some people are impressed by it, some people are repulsed by it, but the point is any Bible reader, any honest Bible reader is going to notice it. That being said, the Bible is also clear that institutional structures can be corrupted by human sin. I don't know how you could deny that. Proverbs 13, 23, the fallow ground of the poor would yield much food, Mm -hmm. but it is swept away through injustice. Mm-hmm. And and then if you've read the minor prophets, all the, the minor prophets don't address individual priests or individual kings and princes. Mm-hmm. They address the leadership class, the leadership structure as a whole. Jesus did the same thing, right? In the parable of of the the vineyard, where he's addressing the leadership class 
of Jerusalem as a whole. It's a corrupt structure. It's The kingdom is going to be taken away from you and given to other people. So I think most Bible readers would concede both of those points. But then our agreement begins to evaporate when we press further than that and begin talking about how to balance these two realities. So long story short, I think critical race theory is a conversation in process. I think the terms and concepts are still being sorted out and defined. So I think there's a chance that once we do that, once we start listening to each other, because when I hear, you know, when I hear people talk about critical race theory, sometimes I agree with them and sometimes I don't. Mm -hmm. uh, meaning it really depends on how they're using those terms. I think as we listen to each other, as as we clarify how we're using these terms, I think there's a decent chance that this particular storm will be you know downgraded from a category five to a category two, and and I doubt that it will destabilize denominations to the same extent that the LGBTQ conversation has and is. Yeah, I think yeah. I think a big part of that is I think subtly and with what you're saying is is the idea of like defining terms, and and so yeah. much of Darnell and I's conversations about race seems that like. There's so much, you know, miscommunication. I mean, on our one of our recent conversations, we were talking about, for example, the term being an anti-racist, right? The very surface right. level terminology, like as a what Christian can disagree with it, but but actually, what is meant by it may not be as clear as that surface level reading of the words. And so, right. you know, or the phrase "Black Lives Matter." I mean, to a certain extent, what Christian could disagree with that sentence? Right, right. But but if I say "Black Lives Matter," What are you hearing? Do you, I have I have a black daughter. Her life matters to me, and I I really hope it matters you have, to you. Oh, well, you have a black daughter. Yeah. Well, our our family is is biracial, okay. so uh, I I can't even understand. Like, is there a Christian out there who doesn't think my daughter's <laughs> life matters? Like, because if there is, I want to run over you with my car. Like, and I would mm -hmm. repent of that afterwards. But. Uh, like so, how could that mm -hmm. how could that be a problem? But then, if you think that I'm saying I've researched the Black Lives Matter organization and I endorse their entire political platform, okay, well then I now I understand why you're offended at me. Um, but so this, I, I do think this comes down to let's slow down. Mm -hmm. Here's the thing: we're not good at any conversation right now. You know, we've breathed in too much anger, too much conspiracy too much polarization mm -hmm. it is hard for us to have a conversation about anything right now and and so we're not doing a great job of listening and asking questions and saying well what do you mean when you say that and are you saying this because mm -hmm. i think if we slowed down and did that i on the critical race theory i think 80 percent of of the volume would would decrease on that yeah, no, I, I I totally agree, uh, Joel and I. <laughs> it's uh, it's almost like uh, we have a quota. <laughs> we have a we have a racism yeah. quota we got to reach with 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 uh with episodes. Uh, uh, but what happens is, the more you talk about it, the more you define your terms, um, the less the less hectic it gets, and and the more clear scripture gets. Kind of like what you were saying, like technically. The issue wasn't necessarily LGBTQ, now that I think about it, what you were saying, and you're right, it wasn't necessarily LGBTQ or social justice. That's not the problem. The problem is um, you guys weren't clear on what the text was saying, and you guys weren't being unified in the text. Yeah. And so um, I can't remember what theologian I, I was reading, but he made a good point, and he just said, like, you know, like you said, um, you know, we're in a point in history um, as the church where we're dealing with new issues. Yes, they're old, but we've kind of got caught up, and correct me if I'm wrong, but we kind of got caught up in um, 
the second great commission in, in going to make disciples and preaching the gospel and keeping everything um, cross-centered, right? But then when you see the rise of BLM and climate change and LGBTQ, um, this isn't a salvific issue. These are social issues, which have to do with the first great commandment in the cultural mandate um, being salt and light. And in my personal opinion, I find that Christians weren't equipped for the salt and light um, apologetic in dealing with these social issues. Everything was just like, okay, well, just preach Jesus and, and hope for the best or just denounce everything and call it uh, cultural Marxism and then, you know, just preach Christ versus like, okay, well, let's let's look at the landscape. Let's let's study economics. Yes, yes, we know our theology. Yes, we know the doctrines of grace, soteriology, a missiology, ecclesi. We know that. But do you know Austrian economics? Do you know do you know the free market? Do you understand um, supply and demand and so forth? And and that those are the things that hit the ground where what people are arguing about the inequality and the inequity. Um, so uh, it, it, it's a lot, but I just think it's important to make sure that that the scripture is primary and that we are slowly, graciously talking these things through. Yeah, no, I agree. Uh, I, yeah, and and the salt and light thing should not be heard just as an, an invitation to intellectual and philosophical engagement. Um, salt and light primarily is about living lives of distinction. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, I, I recently heard a historian say that the Christian church has never recovered from the mass conversion of the Roman elites, um, speaking about the, the fourth century after Constantine's nominal conversion. And, and I, I think that is true because Christianity is really designed to operate as a subversive minority within a culture. It struggles um, when, it, when it occupies the majority, when it's favorable and fashionable. It, it, it struggles. And mm -hmm. I think a great deal of our angst right now uh, is is about the fact that we are losing our majority position in culture. We're sliding back into the early days of the fourth century, into the mm -hmm. late days of the third century, and it requires a complete change in our mindset. And and actually, I'm excited to get back to salt and light. So salt implies a minority distinctive witness. I think that's exactly what we need. Um, it's about speaking from the margins, and it's about looking different. Um, and, and meaning, it's not just about dethroning philosophies. It's about modeling distinctive Christian character. You know, the you mentioned apologetics. Kind of the ground zero text for apologetics is is in First Peter three, um, where he talks about in your in your hearts honor Christ the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense. That's apologia. It's that's that's the word we get apology or apologetics from. But here's the key to anyone who asks you, meaning so it assumes that Christians are living noteworthy, comment worthy intriguing lives. Mm -hmm. And and so I think we need to have more conversations about what does it look like to be intriguing as a minority in 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 this culture. Mm -hmm. Little mm -hmm. things like let's be the people who are known for getting married. Um, that's something we do that's weird. Mm -hmm. Let's be known as the people who have and delight in kids. That's that's weird. That is weird. Yeah. <laughs> let's be the people who uh, who adopt children instead of abort babies. That's, that's weird. That's weird. <laughs> Let's be the people who live on less than we make. 
That's super weird. Um, what, what if Christians were known as people who give away 20% of their income? That'd be super weird. Um, <laughs> uh, 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 th- that's too weird. Is that too weird? Okay. Well, uh, you, you know, so all these, all these little things, there's, there's a great opportunity for us to be a compelling, distinctive minority again. And, and, there, and you speak the gospel with greater authority from that foundation than I think you do from a position of power. Mm-hmm. So I'm not eager to I'm not eager to reclaim the mountain. I guess is, is, I, I'm actually eager, I'm, I'm excited to get back to speaking from the bottom. So this mm-hmm. this this conversation that's that sort of sparked from Darnell's point about salt and light actually reminds me um, to some extent one what Paul you opened up one of your uh, NBC weeks. I think it was like 2014 if I remember correctly. I remember listening to the. Oh, wow, this, you have a great memory. This, well, it was 2013, 2014, something like that. You but you started sort of with a really good line that's I guess always stuck with me and it was and it relates here it's like you started with if you're not informed on these issues you know how are you going to be able to have a conversation how are you going to enter engage in apologetics and so my question to you is you know as a pastor you know NBC is like a you know workshop specialization week so how do you in in today's climate as we're losing that majority position you know how do you as a pastor sort of see doing that? Like in the sense of, is that from the pulpit on your Sunday sermon? Is it supplemented yeah. with other things? Like how do you see giving, like informing that, you know, your Well, your I was trying to remember what message are you thinking of from 2014? And actually the funny thing is, I think I preached on First uh, Peter 3 uh, for, in that message. Meaning I think that was the, the message on always be prepared to give an answer. And, and I think what I had said to people is that that is a very daunting prospect for the average Christian, right? When you hear like, oh, I've got to be prepared to engage these conversations. Most people assume that means I need to go out and get get some books by, you know, Christopher Hitchens and Richard Dawkins, and I need to be prepared to engage in high-level philosophical dispute. And that is terrifying to most people. And I said, let me let me just take the air out of that anxiety balloon and say, no, 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 I think, I think there's two things you need to study. You need to study the word of God and the people you know, because uh, that's really the issue, right? Like if you know your friends, if you know your neighbors and you know the Bible, you you can do the kind of apologetics that is called for in Scripture. What what kind of questions mm-hmm. uh, do, do Canadians have? Like one of the questions Canadians have that you know, and it's this question has been foregrounded by the pandemic is how, how could a good God allow? suffering and difficult circumstances. Canadians are addicted to pleasure. <laughs> we are probably the most, you know, favored and pampered people in the universe. Um, and and there must be no mention of sickness or suffering. But all of a sudden, boom, we're confronted with sickness and suffering. We're locked away in our homes. And people are wondering, like, how could a good God allow suffering? How does that work? Well, there's a book on that in the Bible called Job. You should read it. And and if you, you know, if, if Christians know their friends and they know their Bibles, they ought to be able to do all the apologetics that is called for in Scripture. There, sure, there need to be a couple people out there, the Ravi Zacharias you know, and whatnot, who engage in, in, in sort of high-level uh, apologetics that we can all appreciate. 99.9% yeah, no, of us I think need that's, to know and, our and, friends and know, you know our Going Bibles. back to the 2014, you, that was sort of your, you know, you sort of said, okay, well, right now, here's the hot button topics. And I think you almost did like a, a, a sermon or- a, I think it was called Stones of Offense. Yeah, where we talked about where are our friends tripping and stumbling on their way to Jesus? And and it, and it, it's stuff, it's like suffering. It it's, That's a big one. Sexuality in Canada is huge because sexual autonomy is maybe the highest value in our culture right now. 
And and here here comes Christianity and says, when you become a Christian, you have to do sex God's way. That's enormously unpleasant to the average Canadian. Um, but so you better know, like, what is sex God's way? You you be, you you better have read all the passages in the Bible that talk about sex. Um, and and that's that's probably all the preparation you need to do on that end. And then you you need to know your friends. What are, what are they thinking about sex? What do they believe about sexual autonomy? And then it's you know simply a matter of commending the ways of of God in a winsome relational way to your friends. With with you know you sort of touched on COVID briefly. With with all that's gone on there, there's you sure. know there's this idea about. Um, living in community that I find really intriguing. And and it actually touches on before, like yeah. um, when we were talking about membership, right? Like I sort of have this added or perspective that we have lost the concept of living in community, right? Like how many people live on a street and they don't know any of their neighbors or they know like one neighbor, right? We don't, we don't live in community. And so I'm wondering to some extent, how does that, um, you know, play into sort of the cultural impacting uh, in the church? Obviously to some extent we're, we're fighting it, right? So we try to be, more in community within the church but but that sort of brings me to how has have you seen the community within your church sort of shift through this covid change with you know being locked in their house being you know limited in the capacity to meet and then you know now it's sort of let's say um, back to a, a reasonable level but but how do you see that uh the the you know let's say cultural uh lack of community but also you know how covid sort of shifted that well it's certainly been a challenge that i mean that's for sure and, and I think in essence, it's been, you know, the, the old expression, absence makes the heart grow fonder. I, th- I think a lot of people have finally realized that actually, you know, community, the concept of community is non-negotiable. Like, I, I think there, if, you know, if, if 80% of evangelicals in North America thought that you could believe without belonging before COVID, maybe that number is down to 40%. So it, it, this might end up being a great blessing. Like just people realizing, wow, I need other believers. And this doesn't feel like Christianity. If I'm not loving other believers in my local context, if I'm not rubbing shoulders with grandmas and grandpas, nieces and nephews, brothers and sisters in the faith, I need that. Uh, I miss that. That might be the win right there. Um, But so certainly there's an absence makes the heart grow fonder thing. I think we all get that, that it's necessary. And then, you know, there's the how do we manage the, the meantime where our, our efforts at drawing together are impacted by, by protocols and regulations. You figure it out, you make it work. I've noticed, you know, in the last several weeks at our church that there is a, a, a groundswell of return. So, you know, we're only allowed 30% of our building capacity. Thankfully, uh, you know, we're in the process of planting a church. So right now we have two two sites, which is very, very helpful. Mm-hmm. So we're, you know, we're functioning around 50, 55% uh, of our of return capacity, but but there's this groundswell in the last month. So we're going to a, a second service. So that'll give us three services basically on a Sunday morning, which since you're only allowed 30% of your capacity, will get us very close back to normal. Um, Whoa, that's really good. Yeah. So we are... Um, we're starting to see people really want to be back together. Uh, yeah. While while I was recording, <laughs> while we're recording this right now, just you probably heard a little pop and a ping. I forgot. I don't know how to turn my notifications off without silencing. No, my no, no, no. You're so, good. Um, but it was interesting. A, an email just popped up from from one of our congregants who's really been wrestling with return. Who mm. who was who was back out this past Sunday, and uh, you know, it's uh, people are people are feeling the need to be together. 
Yeah. So I, I think there may be a silver lining in all this. Yeah. You know, it's funny you, you brought you brought that up, Paul, because um, I'm starting to realize that as well. The the that the seriousness of Christians being gripped by fear so much so that they can't attend church. Um, they're not leaving their homes. Isn't of course not just Christians, but it's one of those points where they want to go. Um, but the fear of uh, COVID, uh, the fear of dying, um, they don't want to go to church. And I always make this joke about um, barbershop theology. And so, so you know, I don't know, but I remember growing up, uh, you know, the the main argument you always heard when it came to theology and church was, I don't got to go to church. I can do church by myself at home. Right. That was that was go the for main, a walk on the beach. Yeah, yeah, that, but the, that was the argument a lot of guys would bring. Church. Like, yo, man, I don't, yo, I don't gotta go to church. I don't gotta go to church. You know, I could do church at home. And I yeah. think COVID nineteen um, has squashed all of that. Yeah. Um, because even as much as you know, you know, you know, it's easy to have your your YouTube set up and watch watch it streamed from from home. You know, the people who, you know, of course, who love the Lord and miss their brothers and sisters. YouTube is not cutting it. As, as great as the pastor is my great as a preacher as my pastor is it's not the same yeah you know yeah, yeah. totally yeah and, and i mean i'm thankful for these technologies i mean during the height of the lockdown when we when we were completely isolated i was thankful for live streaming and box cast and all that kind of stuff I and mean, we, mm-hmm. we made full use of that technology but that's you know that that's kind of like eating a can of beans on a, on a fishing trip because you didn't catch any fish like <laughs> yeah it'll keep you from dying but that's you know it's not a good meal yeah 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 no um you know you you want to encourage people uh to go to their actual church and not their alternate church uh common grace pillow fellowship right yeah <laughs> well and that's the problem unfortunately the, the longer that the real lockdown went you know, the, I think the harder it was to regather people. Cause there were a lot of people who were like, this is awesome. Like I can watch <laughs> church whenever I want. Cause it's live stream. Right. So mm-hmm. you can, you, you know, if, if you get there a half hour late, you just start at the beginning. It's brilliant. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, there were people doing church at two o'clock in the afternoon and, and you can, you can do it in your, in your pajamas while you're eating a, you know, a bowl of cereal. Um, and, and it also, it gives you the permission to wander in and out of the room. So if you're bored with part of the sermon, go, go and fix your hair, brush your teeth, come back, and maybe it'll be closer to the end. Um, and it, it, it is, it, it, it was a really, had that gone on for too long, I, I think it would have been even harder to regather people, but you know, I'm thankful for it. I'm thankful for the technology. For those who wanted to gather, I think it was a lifeline. Um, for others, I think it, it, it created some destructive tendencies that had to be pastored. <laughs> and, and, you know, there was, there was a season where you were kind of encouraging people like, Hey, you need to be here. Uh, you need, you need to, you need the discipline. There's something about sitting under a sermon when you can't leave because it, you know, Luther called it the external word, uh, where, where it's being pressed on you. This isn't just what you want to read out of the Bible. Like when we read our, Luther actually said that sitting under the word of God preached is more important for your spiritual growth than reading the Bible privately, which, mm-hmm. which I think most evangelicals would, would not accept. Uh, <laughs> they would not agree with that. But Luther said it is because when you read the Bible privately, you mm-hmm. can skip over all the sentences that you find distasteful or confrontational. You can be your own personal editor. But when you're sitting under, this, under the word of God preached, there's nowhere to go. Like you, you, you have to sit there and hear the whole thing. You have to, you have to have it pressed on you. That's very good. It's very good for the soul. It's, it's very good for the, for sanctification. Yeah. I know, Mm -hmm. I know for me, 
I remember like the first time being back in church took a little longer with two young kids and, and waiting for childcare because two kids under three would have been chaos. Being in corporate worship was the thing that I was just like, didn't even realize I missed the most. Yeah. Like just, just that, that experience is, I don't know. It was, it was uncomprehendable to some extent that I was just, you know, realizing that's what I missed the most to some extent. Yeah. We're wired for for the experience of tribe or family, whatever you want to call it. And and some of us can lie about that to ourselves for short periods of time. Um, but this mm-hmm. this pandemic has, I think, proved to most of us that that was a delusion. That was a deception. You you need this. You need to be part of the body. Um, I, before we wrap up, I did. I want to ask you about your um, pastoring in COVID. I think you did two, two pastoring in a pandemic, yeah pastoring yeah. in a pandemic uh, series like. You know, yep. just, and it was almost, and maybe I'm wrong, but there was an aspect of just encouraging other pastors as to, to the biggest part of that. And I, and I just wonder if you could speak to, you know, as the pastor and seeing probably so much of the, the struggle um, for your congregants and, you know, probably fellow pastors being just bombarded and beaten up over this. So I just wonder if you could speak to that and, and sort of the, you know, walking with other pastors through this. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, part of that just came out of conversations with other pastors on a personal level. So I, I remember I, you know, I had 48 hours of really down spirits. I, you know, depression is probably not the right word, but there was about 48 hours where, where I was not loving pastoring and COVID. And uh, I, I got a really encouraging text from a pastor friend of mine that made all the difference in the world. I remember it was on Saturday morning and he just, you know, reached out and, and we texted back and forth and it was remarkably helpful. And it was kind of a, a revelatory experience to me because I am not, I'm not your typical pastor. I, I'm not all that subjective. I, I'm not all that em- emotionally wired. I, you know, a lot of pastors suffer from low-grade depression. I don't think I do. I think 99% of the mornings I wake up amazed that Jesus loves me, pretty sure this is going to be an awesome day, and let's get at her. Um, but I, I recognize that a lot of pastors aren't wired that way. They're, you know, like like Spurgeon and, and Lloyd-Jones, kind of spiritual depression is, is always hovering in the background. But then under pressure from COVID, I had like 48 hours of am I in the right profession? Like, what the heck is going on? This is nonsense. Um, this is crazy. And then just contact with a fellow pastor really made a huge difference. And so I, it was kind of this little light bulb moment going like, hey, if I needed that, I bet you there's a bunch of pastors out there that need that. Like, I just needed to hear that other pastors were experiencing the exact same things that I was experiencing, that they were just as frustrated, that they were, you know, just as as dry, that they were kind of going through the same pressures, feeling spread way too thin, um, being asked for <laughs> answers they didn't have, like just that that whole thing. And uh, just that moment of solidarity was a tonic for me. So I thought, well, shoot, let's. Uh, how hard would this be to put together? I'll, I'll call up five of my friends and say, would you like to join me on a podcast? We'll talk about all the stuff that's going on, and I bet you that'll be helpful. And I was shocked. I mean, you know, I think I think there were between seven and 8,000 people that, that listened to it, which for a little podcast thrown together by, you know, a couple of Canadian pastors is, is a, is a pretty good listenership. Um, and then, so we thought, well, let's do it again at a different phase of the pandemic. The first one we did when we were all wrestling with trying to come up with protocols uh, for reopening. 
and they were, and the government was changing its mind every 20 minutes. And I, I'd never interacted with the government before. So I didn't realize that they give you permission on Monday and then send you rules on Friday. Like, that's insane to me. Like, why don't the rules and the permission come out at the same time? Um, but anyway, I, I, you know, I hadn't interacted with the government in that sense. You should listen to our podcast. I'll explain why. Yeah, I'm sure there's a good reason. It's cultural Marxism. I'm sure. I don't know. Uh, but, uh, so we were all kind of wrestling with that. And then at the second stage of the pandemic, it was more like marathon exhaustion. Like, wow, this went on a lot longer than we thought. And we're all tired. None of us have taken vacation and we're exhausted and, and so that, that was kind of that conversation. What are you doing to, to, to keep some water in the well or some gas in the tank? And, and again, you know, seven or 8,000 people listening. And so obviously there are a lot of pastors out there looking for that collegiality, looking, looking for that conversation. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, obviously I'm not a pastor, but I definitely found it, um, insightful too, just to, to see sort of, um, uh, an insight into, not just what the congregation's going through too, because there's an aspect that you're speaking to, to your congregants' experiences and and you know how that's affecting you. So I definitely, uh, I definitely appreciate it, even though it I might not have been the let's call it intended audience, the target audience. Well, no, I appreciate hearing that. That's that's good to hear. Thanks. Yeah. Well. Well. Thank you. Thank you, Pastor Paul, for uh, giving us your time and giving us your insights into what's going on in the CBOQ and the whole LGBTQ uh, issue, which is what was really helpful. Oh, thanks for having me. We had a very far-ranging conversation. It was great. Yeah. Uh, well, how can um, our listeners get in contact with you? Uh, well, if they're uh, if they're on Facebook, they can they can find me at the the end of the word Facebook page. Just put in the search bar end of the word, and um, or uh, and there's a contact function there. Then uh, they can do that. Or and I think they can contact me through the TGC Canada website uh, as well. So uh, any any questions, they can find me. I'm fairly active through End of the Word and through TGC. So e- either one of those outlets uh, would get you connected if you wanted to be. Okay, yeah, and I'll make sure to put it, uh, links in the show notes page. So Yeah, perfect. Thanks for coming out. All right, bless you guys. All right, thanks. But you heard me? Does that make sense? I hear